already alluded that Paul will be preaching in two weeks' time. This will be Paul's first sermon here at Eastgate. Next week, we're having one of our pulpit swaps, which we have between uh, four of the churches around Toowoomba. We sw- ministers swap churches to share and preach. So next week, Andrew Nugtron from the Christian Reformed Church will be preaching here, and I will be preaching at their church uh, next Sunday morning. But this is the last in our little short series that we started off the year of Promises That Propel. And then after those two things, Andrew Nugtron and Paul, we will be finishing off our series working through the book of Acts after that. So let's open up in prayer as we look to uh, God's work to change and transform us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call upon you as a father, not as some cruel, domineering overlord, but one who has loved us and loved us in a way that we know that we don't deserve. We thank you that you are a giver of good gifts, including the giver of your beautiful word that sustains us, that equips us for every good work. As we hear what you have spoken through Paul in the book of Romans this morning, may we hear your voice. May we hear and respond in the way that your spirit living within us wants us to respond, that we might walk in obedience, assured in confidence of your love toward us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When you have kids, you start to become aware of things that you never thought you would. I don't know if I've got that yet, but I reckon I've probably got most of the names of every individual My Little Pony. Miller tests me on a regular basis. And Miller likes watching My Little Pony. One time there was this series called Friendship is Forever. Now this sermon's not about My Little Pony nor, nor friendship being forever. And I thought to myself, that's probably a good concept to be teaching to kids at a young age. The idea of loyalty and stickability. But as positive as the idea is, even in a church with a young demographic majority, like ours, I reckon pretty much every person in this room can say they've had someone they thought would be a friend for life and that has broken. It just didn't work out the way it would. I might even go that step further and say, I think it's actually impossible to go through life without someone close to you letting you down or completely turning away from you. And I think because that's such a universal experience for all of us, sometimes we struggle when we hear the promise of God that nothing can separate you from his love. We've heard those sorts of words, we've heard those promises before from people around us, from people really close to us, people we looked up to. They've been broken. We've been hurt. Even though most people who make those promises probably mean it. They probably have the best of intentions. But the problem is they are making a long-term promise that goes well into the future, into a future they have no idea what the future holds. Promise into the future when they have got no idea whether they have the capacity to endure and work through the things that the future may hold. But it would be very, very wrong 
to project that idea upon God. As though, oh, he's all well-meaning and stuff, but he isn't in it for the long run. This is the almighty God who knows the entirety of the future, is able to do every single thing he sets out to achieve. And not only is it unfair to compare God with humanity, it actually goes into the area of slander. Because to slander someone says to speak poorly of someone's character in a way which is negative or belittling to who they truly are. And when we ascribe the character of broken humanity to God, that's exactly what we do. So as we look at this beautiful promise that God says nothing can separate us from his love, if we are in Christ, we must resolve to start on this foundation. This is the God who says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. We must not interpret this promise through our experience with faulty human beings. We don't compare the almighty with the all messed up. My prayer for us is that we would hear this beautiful promise through the lens of God and his character as he's made known to us. The all-powerful, the all-knowing, unchanging God. That we might be set free from the poisonous lie that God doesn't love us. And propel us forward with confidence that we can be assured and know of his steadfast love toward us. And as we do this, we're going to go approaching it in this way. First, we're going to look at the context of the verses that we've had read and say, do we need to even ask this question? Then why we actually do ask a legal case which is settled and lastly, wrapping it up with learning to live as confident conquerors. Do we really need to ask Now, I know we've just done a a one-off sermon here this morning, but if you had read from Romans, from chapter 1, verse 1, by the time you've got to Romans chapter 8, verse 31, you could say, really? After everything that's been said, do I need to ask, can anything separate me from the love of God? Now, I'm not going to give you a a recount through the entirety of the book of Romans, but just in this chapter, the, the verses that come beforehand... Verse 1, we're told there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. We're told in verse 11, the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you to give life to your mortal body. Verse 15, we've been adopted as sons into God's family. Verse 17, not just as as family, but heirs and co-heirs alongside with Jesus Christ. Then you come to verse 30, often referred to as the golden chain. It says, everyone whom God has predestined, everyone whom God has chosen, he calls. Everyone he has chosen and calls, he justifies. That is, declares right in his sight. Everyone he, he, he chooses, calls, justifies and glorifies. There's a consistent link, start to finish, God's love does not fade anywhere from the choosing to going to be with him. So if you even just read through Romans chapter 8, you think, why do we ask? It seems stupid to even ask the question. But at the same time, we can't ignore this. 
despite everything that's been said, Paul does ask the question. I'm a strong believer that God does not waste his words. If something is in the Bible, it's not unnecessary repetition. It's in there because we need it. He knows that even amongst God's children who have heard everything said beforehand, some of us are still going to have that proclivity, even as a Christian. Go through times where we think, does God really love me? But why would we do it? Especially if we actually know all of these wonderful truths in our head. Well, that's what we're going to look at now. There's two aspects. I think partly it's kind of influenced by our bad experiences with broken humanity. We've seen promises made and not followed through. But I think the bigger issue springs from our understanding that we are not deserving of God's love. For those who've ever seen a chick flick, you'll be familiar with this type of a scene. There's this wonderful, handsome prince of a man, probably of of royalty line, who falls in love with a young girl from a poor, lowly background. And as he expresses his love to her, with tears down her eyes, she says, You can't love me! You're a prince! You're so special! I'm just a poor girl! That was a beautiful line. Then the prince says that he loves her. I wouldn't change a thing. I love you just the way you are. The ladies in the room tear up. The men start looking at their phone, wondering what to do. (laughs) Kleenex chairs go up the roof. We've got a clear understanding of who we are. And then we get an understanding of who God is and think, logically, this doesn't fit. He can't love us. And we think, I can give you a massive list of very good reasons why God shouldn't love me. I mean, after all, if I can lose the love of of a fellow broken human being over something trivial, how much more, if he's so perfect and holy, should my offence be against him? How much more should that give him a reason? After all, he made the world, everything in it. He's the king of all of it. He's given us our life. He's given us and blessed us with everything that we need. And we turn our back and say, I don't want you. I'm just going to live like you don't exist, like you don't need to exist. We live in rebellion against him. How ungrateful is that? How much of an offence must that be to one who's given so freely? The way God spoke to the first humans, Adam and Eve, kind of says that, now if you separate yourself from the giver of life and blessing, the result is death and curse. And all of us descended down from those first humans, Adam and Eve, we've inherited that. We've inherited that nature that naturally rebels against God, headed towards death and curse. Why on earth would God love us? We don't deserve it. But the question we're looking at this morning isn't whether or not we deserve it. The question we're looking at this morning is, does God love us and can anything separate us from that love? 
I think we quite clearly understand whether we deserve it or whether we're worthy of it. And admittedly, some people are inclined towards a low self-opinion and may struggle with this a bit more than others. Some might even go so far in their thoughts to think, because of what I've just done, I deserve to be punished more. Some might even go that extra step further and say, I must punish myself because of what I've done before God. Both of those ideas stem from a God-given understanding that justice must take place. But they are wrong and deeply wrong in understanding how justice needs to be carried out. Now, justice is a legal word, and Paul pretty much presents a legal case, verses 31 to 35. Our passage is effectively a summary of everything that's come from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way up to Romans 8, verse 30. That's why he begins by saying, what shall we say to these things? In light of all of these positive things about the certainty of our salvation, what shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's a technique Paul uses a lot throughout this passage. He asks a question, then he answers it with a question where he puts the ball into our court and says, okay, if God is for us, do the logic yourself, do the maths, figure it out, who can be against you? If the one with all power and authority, there is no similar, no challenge to his authority, who can be against us? Everything that this passage looks about, only God would have the capacity to withdraw his love. Either that or it would need to be someone who has greater authority and power for which there is no equal. Not even close. So we're forced to conclude nothing, it's impossible. But let's stop and apply that personally for a moment. Now, we, we do have times sometimes when we wonder, does God love me? We may even have certain areas where we find that happens more often than not. So to bring that question to bear on that particular situation, when you think of that thing, say, does it have more authority and power in God, this thing that keeps me thinking that God might not love me? Well, the natural conclusion that Paul says, if God's for us, this thing that I keep going down towards will have no effect on the love of God towards me. And the next four verses explain why nothing can undo it and why no Christian should ever feel like they need it to be punished additionally. After asking if God is for us, who will be against us? Throughout this passage, Paul uses this technique of asking a question answering it with a question so as the reader or the hearers we need to come to the answer and figure it out ourselves to the question of if God's for us who can be against us he says he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us how will he not also with him graciously give us all things if God is for us who can be against us if it has to either be God himself or someone greater than God, which doesn't exist, is this God going to undo it? This one who sent his one and only son to die on your behalf? It's not just saying that he died for your benefit, which is a true statement, but he died as your substitute. 
in your place. He died your death penalty for our rebellion against God. The penalty has been prepaid, served in full. Who can be against us? Just think for a moment to the earthly legal system. I know Australia doesn't have the death penalty, but around the world, there's probably no higher punishment than the death penalty, is there? You can't say, oh, this person's been really bad, we're going to give them a death penalty, and after the death penalty, we're going to give them this. Send them to jail for two years after the death penalty. Or we give them two death penalties. There's something about the death penalty, it's final. Nothing more can be done. Now, I'm not saying Jesus' death on the cross is an exact parallel to the normal death penalty. There's so much more to what Jesus did and what it achieved. But what it does highlight, even by the world's reckoning of justice, when a death penalty has been served, there can be no more punishment. Jesus Christ has bared the punishment once and for all. In Christ there's no condemnation. There can be no further punishment. So we must stop thinking that we deserve to be punished. We must stop for making actions where we even might punish ourselves because everything that we add to what Christ has done, we say that what he did was not sufficient. Even if the thought was to come to our mind, we can confidently say, I will not. I will not think of God in that way. I will not act towards myself in this way because Jesus has paid this in full. And I will not even think to play down what he has done for me on my behalf. And Paul wants his readers to be so sure that he goes on to continue. Now, the early Greek manuscripts, they don't have punctuation the way that we do. And so where things we have, we, we kind of guess where they should go in there. Now, I've taken the liberty of adjusting verses 33 to 34 to take the same format that 31 and 32 and 35 after it does of asking a question and responding to it with a opposing question. It doesn't change the meaning, but it just reworks it in a way where it gets us to think about the answer to the question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Remember, only God can undo God's stuff. The God who justifies us? The God who, who gave his son, the God who justifies us, has legally declared us right in his sight? You think he's going to bring a charge against you? He has all power. When he justified you, he saw everything you ever would ever say, think or do and he declared us right in his sight. Through Jesus Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. Now that's not to say you won't ever receive an accusation. That won't be hard. People will accuse you of things. Even Satan might accuse you of things. But they will not undo or separate you from the love of Christ. The one who is above all the final judge says, you are right in my sight if you are in Christ. And then continuing with the same technique, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? Really? Who's going to condemn? Only God couldn't condemn. What this one who 
Jesus Christ who died for us, not only he died but who raised again, we can see that God accepted his payment by his resurrection, who is showing his ultimate power and authority, seated at the right hand of God and is interceding on our behalf. Do you think he's going to condemn? So in light of all this, who? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. They're not pleasant experiences. Nowhere in the Bible does it promise that if you are a Christian, you're exempt from any of these experiences either. If anything, the Bible seems to indicate that hardship, opposition, is a natural experience of being a follower of Jesus. It says, look at, look at when Jesus was here, a perfect example. Look at the way they treat him. Don't be surprised if you align yourself with him that things will get difficult. And he takes a quote from Psalm 44 where the psalmist schemes to suggest, man, We struggle all the time. We face opposition all the time, but he doesn't question whether or not God has failed or choosing not to love him. Paul's not speaking about a theoretical idea either. These things that he says, these things don't separate you from the love of Christ, are the exact things he experienced regularly. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll see Paul's list of his experience of serving Christ, and it looks exactly like that list. But never once does he think, oh, God doesn't love me. He says that hinders nothing of God's love towards me at all. These things are not a sign that God doesn't love you. If you're experiencing these things, these are not a sign that God doesn't love you. He's not caring for you. These things are a sign that sin exists in the world. And that we live amongst sinful people. But it also has a longing Knowing there will come a day when we see him face to face when all of these things will be no more. Paul's asked a lot of questions, called us to think about the natural conclusions of those questions. But he finishes with a pretty authoritative statement in verses 37 to 39. But I think it's a statement we're only going to fully appreciate when we understand and relearn love the way God thinks of love. says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does he say about the love of Christ? Through his love we are more than conquerors in all of these things. He doesn't even say, you can be if you do this, this and this, or you might be, but on the merits of what Jesus Christ has already done, by his death, on your behalf, his resurrection, him justifying us, declaring us right in his sight, ascended to the right hand where he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Interceding on our behalf, we are more than conquerors in all of these. These cannot hinder us or separate us from the love of Christ. And we are more than conquerors because not only do they not hinder his love, 
But God can even use those things to grow us and benefit us spiritually. There's no room for doubt in Paul's words. He doesn't say, in my opinion, these things shouldn't have too much of an impact on the love of Christ. He says, I am sure, I am certain, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or to put it in terms of everyday words, he says, I am absolutely certain that there is nothing at all that can separate you from his love. Nothing that can happen in this life, even death itself, cannot separate you from his love. No supernatural power, no supernatural being can do anything to separate you from his love. Nothing in the history past, present or future can separate you from his love. Nothing in heaven and or or on earth. That's the height or depth. Everyone's confused about what's the right way to understand that one, but that's how I've chosen to take that one. Or anything in all creation. Now, I want you to think about anything in all creation. We often think, i.e., trees, grass, all those sorts of things. Anything in all creation means anything that's been created, which means, other than God, everything is the creation. Saying, none of it can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, we find that hard to believe because it's so foreign to human experience, isn't it? Even in Australia, 36% of people who before their closest family and friends say in good times and bad, sickness and health, and richer and poorer, till death to us part, 36% of people don't. Unfortunately, Queensland's actually got the highest divorce statistics. But we must not project the failings of sinful mankind onto God. We must not slander his character. Because I can assure you, if you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. You may have days when you feel down. He hasn't loved you any less. God's love is not like others. He doesn't have any of the limitations of others. He doesn't have any of the failings that we experience around us. When he commits to love us, only he could undo that. And he just said, from the moment I chose you to the moment you go to me in glory, my love remains with you. In everything he says, every single thing that we feared might separate us from his love, he says, in all of that, we are more than conquerors through the love of Christ who died our death We can't take any more punishment. It's been done, paid in full. Approved by God as we see in the resurrection. He has all power and authority. He's there at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding on our behalf. But I know the inclinations of our heart. We wander. We doubt. We think, oh, what about my worst day? I have some shockers. And so where I want us to finish with a reminder of how God did treat us when we were at our worst. Back from Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in that God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You want to know how God treated us while we were at our worst? He loved us enough to die on the cross for us. Remember that. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unfathomable love. Help us to know and live in the assurance of your love toward us, knowing that you are able to carry out everything that you promised to do. Help us to give thanks for your love, even in the the middle of deepest, darkest despair or, or trouble that we might experience in this life. Thank you that you love us like a father. You're always caring for us even at times when we don't understand how your care is being shown. And we thank you that we can live with the assurance that you have no equal, you have nobody who can challenge your promise of love towards us. Help us to walk in the freedom of knowing that we are loved by the almighty King, to love you, to serve you, and to look forward to seeing you face to face. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.